its meaning has become watered down and, and, and confused. You see, the gospel is not the Bible. The gospel is not the word of God. The gospel is not how we live our lives as we try to follow Jesus. The gospel is none of those things. I want you, if you're taking notes, or if you're in your worship guide, fill this in. If not, write this down. The gospel is an announcement of good news. Okay, you got to understand that. It's not any of those other things I said. It is not the Bible. It's not the word of God. It is an announcement of good news. The Greek word for gospel is the word euangelion. Y'all say that five times fast, all right? Euangelion. And it literally means, translated, good news. It means good news. Historically, understand the word in its context. When a, a king would have left his castle, left his kingdom, and he would have gone to do battle with, a, with a, 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 another nation, uh, they, they would go and everyone back at the kingdom is, is, one, is waiting and wondering what has happened to the king and our army. Are they going to show up over the hill and we are going to be okay? Or are the bad guys going to show up over the hill and they're going to come take us over? And then so everyone's sitting there wondering that. And so what the king would do after he's had victory over his enemies, after he's destroyed his enemies, he would send a herald back to his kingdom to announce the good news that the king has won the battle, that their, that their nation has won, the king has won, he's had victory. And so the people waiting would see the herald coming, and he would announce the euangelion, he would announce the gospel, the good news, that the king has had victory over his enemies. So when we say the gospel, it is the very same thing. It is an announcement, it is a declaration from a herald, it is the good news of what has happened, that our king has come to do battle with our greatest enemy, namely the devil, sin, and death. And our king has won the battle, won that victory through his death, through his resurrection, and now he has been victorious for us. And the gospel is an announcement that Jesus has won. It is an announcement of victory, that sin has been defeated, that death has been defeated, that his victory has been sealed, and now we can be made right with God. See, the gospel is not something you or I do. It is an announcement. It is a declaration of good news of what has been done for you, that our king has emerged victorious from the grave. You see, religion, religion says, here are the rules to live by. And if you do A, B, and C, if you follow these rules, if you go to church, if you're a good person, da 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 then in the end, you will have victory and, make, and find your way to God. But the gospel says that you didn't lift a finger, but victory was fought for you on your behalf, given to you. And now you have victory because of what's been done on your behalf. You see, the gospel is not good advice. It's not self-help. It's not rules to follow. It's not a way of life. It is a proclamation. It is a message of what has been accomplished for us. That Jesus came, Jesus died, Jesus conquered the grave, and the victory is his. Done for us. While we were broken, while we were sinners, while we didn't lift a finger, done on our behalf. The gospel, write this down, the gospel is the good news. That Jesus has won the victory over our greatest enemies, sin and death. Right, We've got to understand that going forward. So at the top, 
Paul wants to make clear that this gospel, this announcement of good news, this victory that Christ has had, he is not ashamed of it. He's not ashamed of this good news. He's not ashamed of the gospel, of this proclamation. So that's the second point. Write this down. He's not ashamed of the gospel. Now, three quick things to notice about this. If we're going to understand what Paul means by not being ashamed of the gospel, we have to know what, what, he, what it means to be ashamed of the gospel. So the first thing I think Paul is saying is that he's not ashamed of the content of the message. When he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, I think the first thing he's saying, he's not ashamed of the content of the message of the gospel. You see, the gospel is offensive. Sometimes we try to remove the offense, and when we do, we remove the power. The gospel is offensive. It was offensive to those in the first century, and it is definitely offensive to those in modern people as well. The message of the gospel, if true, says some things about me and you that are offensive to us. The gospel tells us that you and I are spiritual failures. The gospel tells us that we're spiritual failures because we needed a king to come rescue us. It tells us that we are not actually Decent human beings deserving of God's love. That's not who we are, but that instead we are wicked, deserving death, deserving judgment. That we can't come to God on our own, on our own terms, but are completely dependent upon God's mercy and grace and deliverance, and without him, we are hopeless. So when Paul says that he is not ashamed of the gospel, he is saying, I am not ashamed of the reality that I'm a horrible, no good, very bad person. He's saying that I am not ashamed of the fact that I am wicked, that he, later he will say that he is the chief of sinners. He's the worst of the worst. This guy that's writing the Bible says I'm the chief of sinners, that I deserve hell, and that God would be right and good to send me to hell, and that my only hope in life and death is the grace and goodness of Jesus. I'm not awesome. Jesus is awesome. I'm nobody. Jesus is everything. That's offensive. That's offensive. And so if you have a tendency to think that you are a good person, if you have a tendency to think that you're going to go to heaven because of the good things that you've done, because you're a good man who takes care of his family, you're a good woman who, who's a good wife and a good mother and a good, uh, you know, if you think that you're good, good spouse, that you go to church, that you do the right things, you make the right choices, you live a good life, then either you do not understand the gospel or you are ashamed of the gospel, if you think that. The second thing Paul is saying, so at first he's not ashamed of the gospel, but he's not ashamed of the content. He's not ashamed of what the gospel says of us. He's not ashamed that it tells us that we are in need of a savior. And second, he is not ashamed of the gospel. Is that, what he means is that he is unconcerned with the repercussions of affirming the gospel. He's unconcerned with the repercussions of affirming the gospel. You see, Paul lived in a time where if you said Jesus was not popular, that's an understatement, okay? The Jews and the Romans, for differing reasons, wanted Jesus and his followers and this movement to go away. And they were willing to throw you in jail, beat you into an inch of your life, torture you, or put, impale you on a stake and light you on fire to light the Colosseum. They were willing to throw you to lions for the praise and entertainment of, of people. 
They were doing, willing to do whatever it took to wipe out this movement called the way, uh, following Jesus. They wanted nothing to do with it. They wanted it gone. And so Paul knew that preaching about Jesus, particularly in Rome, would lead to suffering. That preaching and talking about Jesus would lead to suffering. And he did it anyway. He would be stoned twice. Stoned, meaning they hit him with rocks until they thought he was dead and walked away. And he comes to some hours later and crawls away and lives. Twice thrown in prison, he's whipped and eventually imprisoned and put to death. To be ashamed of the gospel, to be unashamed of the gospel rather, is to say, I don't care what happens to me as a result of the gospel. The gospel is more important to me than life itself. That's what he's saying when he says, I'm not ashamed. I don't care what happens to me. I don't care of the consequences. I don't care what people think. I don't care what people say. I don't care what people do to me. I'm unashamed of the gospel, and I will continue advancing the gospel no matter what the cost. And so my question for us this morning is, is that true of us? Is it true of you? Is it true of you that you're unashamed of the gospel? Let, let me ask you, does affirming the gospel, does speaking of the gospel, does making the gospel loud in your life, uh, has it ever cost you anything? Or would it potentially cost you something? Well, does it cost you relationships? People, people want to keep you at arm's length. People don't want anything to do with you because they're tired of you and your Jesusness. Does it, does it cost you a promotion because it's created some issues at work and now they're going to promote this other guy instead of you because, you know, you've got values and you won't maybe do the things they want you to do? But does it cause you to lose respect and credibility at work or amongst your peers? Does it, does it, does it, cause friction in these relationships? Does it make other people treat you differently? Being unashamed of the gospel means you do not care what it costs you. You won't stop talking about it because you're unashamed. I cannot tell you how many times in my life God has given me the opportunity to talk to someone about the gospel. And it's just like in, you're in that moment and you know God's just like, Brent, just spotlight on that person, go. And I go, I don't know about that. Okay, okay, no, I can't do it. Uh, no, no. And, and I don't want to fail. I, I, I'm, in that moment, I'm ashamed of the gospel. And, and I'm, I'm ashamed to tell you that I've done that more than once. I've done that a lot of times. Where it's just like, ah, oh, it's just awkward. How do I bring it up? How do I get there? What if he thinks I'm like a Jesus freak crazy person? But, you know, what if, what if he gets mad? What if we get into an argument? Whatever the reason... It's like, God's like, do it. And I'm like, no, okay. And in those moments, I'm ashamed of the gospel. Thankfully, Jesus' mercies are new every morning and that I am saved by grace and not my ability to be unashamed. Amen? If God forgave Peter three times for denying him, I think the Lord in his mercy will forgive us for those moments where he's called us to action and we shrunk back in fear and we're ashamed. And so Paul wants them to know he's not ashamed of whatever's going to happen to him by preaching the gospel. He's willing to take it. I'll take it. If it's humiliation, if it's beating, if it's stoning, if it's imprisonment, if it's death, I don't care. I'll take it because the gospel is more important and I'm not ashamed of it. May we end up becoming like Paul. Finally, I think what he means when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. If you read the previous verse 15, he talks about how he's eager. 
to share. And I think if you combine that, that's what he's saying. He's saying to not be ashamed of the gospel means you are eager to share it. Paul was not ashamed of the gospel. He was eager. He was chomping at the bit to share it with everyone. See, for Paul, every day was a new opportunity to share this life-saving message. So here's the question. Do you see every coffee shop, every new day at the office, every trip to the store, every day, uh, every time you take your kids to the playground, every day that you sit on the bleachers of the soccer game or the football game or whatever game you're at, do you see that as an opportunity to share the gospel or do you sit ashamed of it? And my prayer for myself and for our church is that we would become a people who are unashamed and therefore relentless and eager and passionate about sharing Jesus with everyone we can. When I was in Virginia, um, I, I, was, I was not the senior pastor, and so uh, I was you know, the college guy and, and did my own thing. And uh, every now and again, I'd get the opportunity to preach. And we had four services, and so preaching was like exhausting to do it four times. And um, I remember this one particular week, I, I was kind of stressed and kind of just had a busy week with my own things going on. And, and one of our other pastors said, hey, uh, we were talking. He's like, hey, you excited about this week or how's the week going or whatever? And I was like, man, it's good. I'm just really busy. And then on top of all of this stuff, I, I got to preach on Sunday. And he stopped me in my tracks and he said, he said no, 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 sir, uh-uh. Uh, you don't got to preach. You get to preach. And I was rocked. It's like, that was true. And, and, and I think sometimes we, we, we think, oh, I've got to go, go do this. I've got to go share the gospel. I've got to go talk about Jesus. I, I'm supposed to do that. And we begrudgingly try to kind of get over ourselves and kind of walk through that murk and, and try to make ourselves do it. But talking about Jesus is not something we should begrudgingly do. It's not something we got to do. We shouldn't see it as something we have to do. Rather, we, it should be something that with great joy we see it as the greatest honor and privilege of our life to do. We get to do it. We've been invited to do it. It is a privilege and an honor to do it. Whether it is from this stage or in a one-on-one -on -one conversation in a coffee shop, it is a privilege and an honor. There's only one way we kind of get over ourselves and, and see it that way, see it as an honor. Only one way we become eager to share the gospel, only one way we see it not something we've got to do but get to do. And that's the third point. And it's that we see the gospel as the power of God that actually changes our lives and everyone else's. Point three is the gospel alone has the power to transform people's lives. The gospel alone, key in on that word alone, has the power to transform people's lives. In verse 16, Paul clearly says, the reason he's not ashamed of this gospel is because it is the power of God and salvation. Now notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say the gospel contains the power. He doesn't say the gospel channels the power. It's not one of many powers. The gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. Now power is this Greek word called dunamē, and in the 18th century, when we developed this explosive that could blow up rocks so we could uh, mine or you know, build a, a railroad, railroad or whatever, whatever the case may be, we could blow up these rocks. They needed a word for this explosive, and they used the Greek word dunamē to, to, to name it, and we called it dynamite. And so when you think about the power of the gospel, I want you to understand that it is an announcement, it's a message, and it is the, the gospel has the power like dynamite. 
that it can blow up and remove the hardest of hearts. See, the gospel's not good advice. It's not helpful instructions that you ought to follow. The gospel's not a suggestion. It's not a life motto. It is, it's, it is itself power. The message of a crucified and risen Christ is the power that can forgive sins, reconcile people to God. It can soften the hardest of heart, diamond-hardened hearts it can soften. It brings new life. It can completely change people from the inside out. It makes people into new creations. New creations. I think sometimes in our desire to reach people with this gospel, we begin to employ and trust in strategies and hopes that these other strategies might result in people getting saved. We begin to place our trust in things that have no power. Like we begin to think, oh, if I can get so-and-so who's lost, to listen to this preacher who's so good, not me, some other guy, who's so good, and they'll, 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 they'll get saved. They'll get saved. As if a really good communicator has the power. You know, the Lord does something in my life, and, I, and I've heard a lot of preachers say this, it's really fascinating. There will be times where I will preach a sermon, and I will think, man, that was good. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'll preach it. I go, man, that was a grand slam. And after the service, like, ain't nobody crying. Ain't nobody coming up. Nobody comes up and go, man, Brent, that was the best sermon ever. It's just like crickets. And it's like, well, it wasn't. And then I'll preach sermons, and it's just like, ooh, I hope everybody fell asleep. I hope nobody, hope people forget that one. I just laid an egg. It was terrible. And people will come up and get saved They'll be weeping. They'll say, Brent's the best sermon I've ever heard. Brent, that so moved me. It changed my life. Da, 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 da. God will work through it. And it's like, huh? Because it's like God reminding Brent, there's no power in you. Ain't no power in however good you think you may be. Power's in the gospel. Power is in the gospel. Sometimes we think that if the room or the atmosphere fits what we think church should look like, our kind of preferred preference for church, then the gospel will be powerful. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say this on, in both directions, right? Like, like if we just had the stained glass and the hymnals and, uh, and, and the Gaither band up here and, and the choir robes, man, people, get, people, told me, people would get saved if we did that. And then on the other hand, people tell me, man, if we just had fog machines and laser lights and louder music and, and whatever, man, people get saved. And I, I, I used to be in that camp, right? People get saved if we have that stuff. No power in that. There's no power in stained glass, no power in fog. There's no power in those things. But understand this. The gospel has been preached from the stages of rock concerts and laser shows. Then the gospel has been preached on the stages with stained glass and the Gaither band. The gospel has been preached in coffee shops and it has been preached in the huts on the African plains. And when the gospel is preached, it does not matter the setting or the environment or the eloquence of the speaker because the gospel itself is the power to save sinners like you and me, not the setting. 
See, the gospel is this speech act. It not only announces the way of salvation, but, but salvation, it actually actualizes salvation to those who hear it in faith. You see, the gospel manifests, it creates God's death-defeating, curse-reversing, evil-vanquishing, devil-crushing, sin-cleansing, life-giving, love-forming, people-uniting, super-duper-result-in-salvation kind of power. It does that. The gospel does that. When, when, when I was growing up, I was, I was very religious from an early age. We went to a, to a Methodist church when I was little. I was sprinkled as a, as a baby. Uh, I, I grew up in church. I knew Jesus. I knew God. I believed in them from, from the moment I was conceived, I feel like. And I was in church, and I knew those things. Uh, and, and one Sunday school, I was scared because he was talking about hell and how hot it was going to be. And I was like, that did not sound fun. I don't want to go there. And so I prayed this prayer with a guy. got baptized. I thought everything was good. But then I was, I was struggling, and I, I prayed the sinner's prayer every night, and I prayed and prayed and prayed. Every night again, I'd say, God, if I didn't mean it last night, I mean it tonight. If I didn't say it right last night, I'll say it right tonight. And I was praying and praying and, 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 and never felt assured, never felt comfortable. And then one night at a Christian camp, I had heard the gospel for probably the 1,000th time. But in that moment, it was like I heard it for the first time. You know what I'm saying? Like I knew the things that they were saying, but for the first time they clicked. For the first time they got past the, the rock walls around my heart and they got to the deep part. For the first time they got in there and in that moment my heart of stone crumbled and I surrendered my life to Christ, received forgiveness of my sins and was changed forever. Because the gospel finally clicked, it finally got through and it was the power that changed my heart and saved me. Religion never saved anyone. Understa an intellectual understanding of God never saved anyone. Hearing the gospel doesn't save anyone. What does? Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God for salvation. For who? Where is the gospel powerful? Where does it change lives? Where? For good people? For bad people? For religious people? For who? He says, for everyone who believes. Notice. It's not for everyone. He doesn't say the power of the gospel is for everyone. No, he says the power of the gospel is for everyone who believes. See, Jesus' death on the cross does not automatically grant everyone in the world forgiveness. His death on the cross does not automatically make his victory your victory. His death on the cross doesn't make his resurrection your resurrection. To, to get that, to get access to that, to get united to that, to get what he has for you, you've got to believe the gospel point four the gospel is only good news for those who believe it is only good news if you believe it see coming from a christian family does not make you a christian coming from a christian family does not make you does not make you believe the gospel having a spouse who faithfully follows jesus does not make you a child of god being the children of parents who drug you to church does not make you a Christian. Coming to church doesn't mean you belong to Jesus. Serving in the church doesn't mean you're going to heaven. No one can believe the gospel for you. We might shove it down your throat, but only you can believe it. You must believe it for yourself. You see, to be saved has nothing to do with how good you are or how much you come to church. To be saved has everything to do with how you respond to this message 
this proclamation, this good news, this announcement of a death and a resurrection, how you respond to Jesus. Sometimes this is confusing for us, so I want to make it really, really clear. If you've heard the gospel, you must respond. And I will give you three, th- three ways you've got to respond. You've got to first, you've got to believe that Jesus came and lived a sinless life, that he died a death on your behalf, and that he was raised from the dead, physically raised from the dead in victory. Second, when you believe that, you've got to confess to him that you're a sinner. You've got to own up to the fact that you are broken, and that you deserve his wrath and judgment, and that you stand guilty and condemned before him. And third, you've got to ask him to forgive you. You don't have to list every sin. None of us ever could. You've got to confess your sins and say, Jesus, forgive me. Wash me clean by your blood. And if you do that, if when you hear the gospel, you respond in faith and you believe and confess and ask him to forgive you, he will make you his child. He will wipe your sins away from the past, the present, and the future. He will wash them all through the blood of Christ. That is what it means to believe the gospel. That is what it means to not only hear the gospel, but to respond to it in faith. And there's some of you in this room right now, and man, like I've been hammering this home, and like your ears have been shut off to it, your heart has been closed off to this idea. And I just want to pray that you would hear me right now. There are some of you in this room, and you think you're going to die and go to heaven because you are a good person, and you are going to be surprised one day when you wake up and it's hotter than you anticipated. There are some of you in this room that you think you are good, decent people, and and you are to worldly standards, right? Like you are a good, decent person. Just not compared to a holy, righteous God who must judge the world in righteousness. So, man, if that's you this morning, stop playing games. Stop pretending. Stop putting your hope and your trust in your own goodness and just be like Paul and be unashamed of it and come and say, man, I get that I'm not good before God. Man, his forgiveness, he will lavish it upon you. Just freely give it to you. I hope this morning, if that's you, you'll you'll hear that for the first time in a new way and believe it. Notice that Paul says, so one, if you're writing this down, write down, I must respond to the gospel with faith to be saved. Notice to put I there. I must respond. We can't respond. I must respond. You must respond. Notice Paul says this phrase, from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You see, we don't get saved by faith alone, and then, like, we get in by faith, and then we stay in God's good graces by being a good person. That's not how it works. We don't get in by faith and then stay in God's good graces by repenting really well. That's not how it works. We get in by faith, We stay by faith, we end the race in faith, in Christ, in him alone. Finally, he says, finally, righteousness revealed. What does he mean when he says that in in the gospel, the righteousness has been revealed? What does that mean? This is something that honestly should be super encouraging to us. Paul says that the gospel has revealed the righteousness of God. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus, his perfection, when he lived on earth, his perfect righteousness, his perfection, that means every time he obeyed his parents, every time he didn't lust after a woman, every time he wasn't jealous, every time he didn't gossip, how he lived this perfect, blameless, righteous life. He never cheated. 
The fact that he stared down the devil when tempted and said no to him. Everything, all of that, everything that is now true, that, that is true of Jesus, when you trust in Christ, is now true of you. Righteousness revealed means his righteousness now belongs to you. You see, forgiveness isn't enough. If you think about it, you, you swipe up your credit card and you get in debt, right? You're over here in, your de- in debt. What does forgiveness mean? Forgiveness brings you back to zero. That's forgiven your sin. Now you're at zero, but the Bible says a righteous will inherit the kingdom of God. Where do you get righteousness from? You try to be righteous, you're just going to end back up over there. But rather, Jesus grants you his righteousness as if you did it yourself. So now you get to be over here in the positive. And so now when God looks at you, he doesn't just see a sinner who's been forgiven. He sees someone who's always obeyed God. He sees someone who stared down the devil when tempted and said no. He sees somebody who's always obeyed his mother and father. He sees somebody who's never lusted after another person at all. He sees someone who's not sexually broken. He sees somebody who is not addicted and broken and all these things. He sees somebody who is perfect, shining like a light in the darkness. He sees you in Christ. And on, on your worst day, like when you screw it up worse than ever, on that day, God sees you as perfectly righteous when you're in Christ. Not just as a, as a screw-up sinner that he's forgiven, but as a sinner who he's made perfect. Jesus, his righteousness is yours. And that's encouraging to us, man, because on those days we don't have it together, and we remember the gospel is true of us. On those days we don't have it together, those days we fail, those days we mess up, we don't have to go beat ourselves up. We don't have to go and beg God to forgive us. We can remember what's already true of us in Christ. My sin was wiped away. And Jesus' righteousness is mine. And God looks at me as if I was perfect. He takes sinners who deserve hell and he places medals of honor around our necks. You see, if you are in Christ, God's righteousness is yours. And on your worst day, you're perfectly righteous before God. See, Paul starts off this letter wanting to make something really clear. That Christians have an incredible power at our fingertips. A power that has changed our lives and everyone around us' lives. A power that can change the world simply by sharing words. Words that have power. And church, may fellowship be a church that is never ashamed of the gospel. May we be individuals who are never ashamed of the gospel, of this message, because it has made us who we are. Without the gospel, there is no telling where you and I would be. Thanks be to God who gave his son for broken people like you and I. That the gospel is power enough to save a wretch like me. So let us strive to never be ashamed of who we are because of the gospel and let this gospel ever be on our minds and our hearts and on our lips so that others too may experience the awesome power that our King has won the victory for us. A victory won through the death and resurrection of Jesus. A victory that now belongs to us. And we can be like the heralds who run forward declaring victory that others may cherish it and take it in. Let us pray. 
Father, we come to you this morning. God, and we ask that you would help us to be a gospel people. People who never get beyond or deeper or further than the gospel, but just go deeper in it. A people who, when we struggle, when we sin, when we mess up, we don't waller in self-pity. We don't beat ourselves up in condemnation. But a people who remembers what's true of us in Christ. May we be a people who, when we are sent to those when we might share the gospel with, we don't back down in fear. We don't shrink in fear. We don't stand there ashamed of the gospel, but we are eager to share it. Let us be people who are unconcerned with the consequences of sharing the gospel. Unconcerned of what it might mean for our relationships. Unconcerned of what it might mean for our job. Unconcerned of what it might mean uh, if we go, uh, to be thrown in jail, beaten, or even killed. Father, help us to be unconcerned that it might embarrass us. Americans, that's our greatest threat. We're not worried about being imprisoned. We're worried about being embarrassed. We're worried about hurting relationships. Lord, may we never be ashamed of the gospel. And Father, for those in this room right here who don't trust in you, who have never believed the gospel, who are not yours, maybe they think they're a good person, maybe they think they're good enough, maybe they think they're religious enough, Maybe they're really super far from you, and they're none of those things. How would you this morning show them that they can, they can run up here and talk to me, and I would just be so thrilled show them how you will invite them home and make them yours, change their life. And if you're here this morning, that's you. Would you come talk to me? If you're here this morning and you need someone to pray with you about anything going on in your life, I'm up here, and there's some guys on the sides that would love to talk to you, love to pray with you. I'd love to do that. God, give us the courage to respond how we need to. In Christ, and we pray all those people said. Stand and sing.